All right, let's bow our heads and pray together for the word of the Lord going forth this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this precious day that we can gather together to worship you. We thank you for all your provision. We thank you for your goodness and grace to us. We uh, always are ready to acknowledge, Lord, at this time our lack of wisdom, our lack of understanding, and that we must come to you for it. And we can do that knowing that you are patient with us. You give us what we need to understand. You do so without finding fault. So pray, Lord, for a blessed time this morning in your word, that your church will benefit from it, rejoice in the truth, and draw near to our Savior. So we commit this time to you by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Peter. It's not quite our text today, but it's important to establish the context. So we'll begin there. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. And as we've been working our way for the last several months through this book, our starting point this morning, were we to continue in our verse-by-verse exposition of it, would be chapter 3, verse 10. And today's text, I think, relates well to this, but let's at least get a hint of what we are going to be getting into, if not next Sunday, then the Sunday after. Second Peter 3.10, please listen in with me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, <clears throat> in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Why don't we continue? Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So my project, especially beginning last week, was to at least begin unpacking this entire passage. There's no shortage of opinions on what, on what Peter is actually describing uh, in, these, in these few verses. And so as I'm working through that, I thought, okay, well, what could we go through that will help Uh, set the stage for this. And we kind of have done that already. We've talked a lot about false teachers. We've talked a lot about the challenges that these various churches are facing, these churches to whom Peter is writing. And so now we are faced with, or the churches rather, are faced with this, this expectation of the Lord Jesus Christ returning in judgment. And so when we come to verse 10, I think we begin to see what this judgment actually entails. And so a few things to point out before we go to our actual passage will suffice. Of course, one, it's called the day of the Lord. Verse 10 opens up just describing it as the day of the Lord. And there are many different days of the Lord in the Scriptures. And this one speaks to a particular event to which these churches are looking forward to, that they are expecting even in their own lives. We also find that this day of the Lord will come with the heavens passing away with the roar and the elements being destroyed with intense heat. And we think, well, what, 
What in the world does that actually mean? All we can see for now is that something is going to expire. Something is going to, what it looks like, is be destroyed or be made obsolete. And then it describes, verse 10 does, how this is actually going to happen. And it says, the earth and all its works will be burned up. And then, of course, 11 uh, on through 13 continues to describe that, that event as well as the inauguration or the incoming of the new heavens and new earth. So there is a ton going on here. But one thing <coughs> that I want to pay attention to this morning is this phrase, its works will be burned up. Now, a lot of commentators like to argue over what this actually points to. Um, rather than being burned up, it is suggested that this, actually, this burning is actually an exposure of something. It, mean, it refers to something that is to be laid bare, made plain, discovered, right? exposed for what it is. And I think, what is going to be exposed? What is in judgment here? And we've kind of said all along, but the judgment in, in view here is over the old cosmos, the, the old fading creation. Of course, through the gospel, the new heavens and new earth will be ushered in as the church continues to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the entire world. So the question becomes, what is going to be exposed? What is going to be burned up? Where, where else can we look to in Scripture to see what is, how, how that is described? And I, th I thought a good place to look would be in Matthew 23. And of course, one of the reasons is because Matthew 23 comes right before Matthew 24. See, Jesus in Matthew 23 is sitting in Jerusalem. He's teaching. And then when it gets to the end of the chapter and into the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus walks away from the temple right after weeping over Jerusalem. And then he proceeds to give the Olivet Discourse which is describing in, in a different way or a similar way that which Peter is describing in 2 Peter chapter 3. So that's the, that's the connection there between these two texts. But I want to I answer that question though. What is going to be burned up? And one of the things I want to answer specifically is not just the old creation in general. We understand that. But when it comes to investigating this matter, we also want to ask, what, what is going to be burned up that characterizes the old creation? What is, what is it that needs to go? What is it that's being judged? What is it that's being exposed? And I would say, Matthew 23, verses 1-12, through 12, may not be an exhaustive explanation, but it is a very good and thorough one. So if you're not there already, please turn with me to Matthew 23. And again, commensurate with our title, What Must Burn? A Prelude to the Day of the Lord. So what is going to be exposed here are these attitudes. Certain spiritually apostate attitudes that characterize this old creation. And it is found sufficiently in the exposure, actually an exposure made by the Lord Jesus Himself over this legalistic kind of Pharisaism. And I believe that it is, a, it is this kind of apostate spirituality that is actually managing to find itself in these churches. It is some form of this that the churches are having to fight back against. Right? An old kind of apostate Judaism that is trying to draw people away from the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of His Gospel. 
I mean, after going through 2 Peter chapter 2, that's what he's doing constantly throughout the entirety of the chapter. He's warning, he's warning people against false teachers who have apostatized from the gospel and yet are still involved in the church, still present in the assembly, and trying to drag them away, even though the example they set is deplorable. Even though what they may characterize as true spirituality, as, as real life, as the good life, it is going to be judged and judged severely. And I, and I like to isolate what is going on in these verses as well because these are things that are always going to be challenges to the church. Even if, we, even if the church, you know, for, by some miracle, or, or, or is able to develop sound spiritual habits and disciplines to where they don't, they don't accept false gospels, right? We're ready to recognize them. We have that discernment. There are still particular attitudes which can infiltrate the heart of the church and, of course, threaten to shipwreck us, especially ruin our testimony. And there will be three that I will bring to our attention. We may get through one or two today, but we'll get as far as we can. But I believe these are important enough to kind of grease the tracks into the remainder of Second Peter. It's almost like one last reminder, things we need to call to mind because even if false teachers do not find their way in our midst, these attitudes certainly can. And these are attitudes that we need to take seriously. These are attitudes that many of us need to repent from. But I tell you, these are things that will, one way or another, be exposed for what they are. Being exposed for the danger and counterfeit that they really are. So let's get into the text this morning. Again, we want this to be a benefit to the body on this Lord's Day and things that we can think deeply about because even though we are living in light of Christ's victory over apostate Jerusalem, we by no means have arrived. We have not been resurrected. We still are awaiting for the Son to turn over the kingdom to the Father. Paul writes this to Timothy. Take heed unto yourself and to your doctrine. This is Paul speaking to a pastor, but I find that this is especially applicable to anyone who calls themselves a Christian. Because we can become so good at refining our doctrine, so skilled at theological precision, and yet sometimes we do that and we fail to look to our own heart. We fail to examine the inner man to see if there is any corruption, to see if there is any hypocrisy, to see if there's any pride. Take heed unto yourself, he says. And so this is a great opportunity to do so. And one last reminder, remember in 1 Peter chapter 5, it is time for judgment to begin for, with the household of God. It pays to examine ourselves, to examine our motives, to, the, to examine our trajectory, our own spiritual trajectory, so we don't wander away from the grace of God that is in Christ. So let's look at this. Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to His disciples. So He's in Jerusalem saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say and do not do them. Okay. That's the first thing. And I think 
And I think this first characteristic, this first thing that needs to be burned off from the church is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, I think, remains and has remained, and I think appropriately so, one of the, perhaps the primary thing that the unbeliever points out as a reason to not want to have anything to do with organized religion, especially Christianity. There is something particularly unnerving about hypocrisy within the Christian family, the Christian community. And I would say that's totally appropriate. As we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, it is especially befitting of the Christian to walk with integrity, to not be hypocritical. Hypocrisy, we could say, in the vein of 2 Peter, characterizes especially the old creation. It characterizes all that we were apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he warns them about this, that this, this hypocrisy is that, is that points to the Christian or points to the church that has no consistency in their walk. And that's why he says this to them. He points out specifically, Jesus does, the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice he looks at the leaders. He looks at the leaders of the Jews, not, not the common people, right? If you were a Pharisee living in that day and were especially self-righteous, if you were the type of hypocrite that Jesus is identifying here, you would think, oh, he's going he's gonna to talk about these common folk, these folk that don't know anything, that are uneducated, that are spiritually immature, that cannot get to the level of spiritual maturity that I daily put on display. And yet they end up being the example not to follow. And again, just the context here, this is during Passion Week. Jesus is soon going to be crucified. And He is facing down the Pharisees, really just putting them on blast here. And incidentally, Pharisees were the primary antagonists of Jesus. They seemed to follow Him around everywhere, persecuting Him, harassing Him, accusing Him of all kinds of blasphemies and being a false prophet and being one who leads the people astray. Those were the Pharisees. Sect made up of about, about 6,000 Jewish men. 6,000 Jewish men. They were teachers of the law. They would have been characterized as the theological liberals of the time. But they would have been the ones you would look to if you wanted to know your Bible. They believed in angels, the afterlife, the resurrection, judgment upon the wicked, reward for the righteous. They believed in many things that we believe still today. And yet in spite of all of that orthodoxy, they ended up being the primary antagonists of Jesus. You also have the scribes being mentioned. The scribes were simply the scholars. They were seen as the learned ones. They were the ones who sat around and copied manuscripts. They studied the Scriptures as well. Sometimes it's, it's a nice thing to be able to lock yourself in a room and learn something. So they had a great knowledge of the OT Scriptures in addition to what came to be known as rabbinic tradition. So you had the law of Moses, and then, and then after the exile, from, from the time we're dealing with now, you had this huge traditional legacy built up. Rules upon rules upon rules. And so here we have a great showdown. Very significant in the ministry and life of Christ. And the first thing he says is, see these people here. Look what they've done. What have they done? It says they've seated themselves in the chair of Moses. So what's the chair of Moses? Here's the first thing here that he points out in terms of their hypocrisy. Really, this is a counterfeit authority. A hypocrite is always going to carry with him a counterfeit authority. 
He will place himself in that seat. Now, in, in, in the synagogues, in that, era, in that time, it was the seat of Moses. And the seat of Moses was a literal seat. And if you were a leader of a synagogue, that was your seat. You would sit there and you would pontificate. You would teach the oral and written law. Often the seat of Moses was that seat which was reserved for a prominent teacher, perhaps someone famous in a given area, and so they were welcome to that seat. But perhaps in this case it is best understood as a figurative expression, meaning that the Pharisees, for all their apparent learnedness and and surface righteousness, they had usurped the authority of the Word of God and twisted it to their own ends and added to it all their traditions. But of course, that doesn't mean that their teachings were without any validity. Listen to what Jesus says. All that they tell you, do and observe. See, from the, from the, from the viewpoint of Christ, He's telling His disciples and who's ever with them, look, what they tell you, do and observe. See, if the Word of God is preached to you, it still remains the Word of God. The most vain, self-righteous hypocrite could be preaching it to you, but even a broken clock, as we find, is right twice a day. So if the Word of God comes to you, you are to obey it. But then he, but then he warns them very quickly, don't do what they do. See, do not do according to their deeds. What they tell you, sure. Listen to it, obey it, put it into practice. But the example they're setting, even though they're your teacher is not one for you to follow. It is an example of hypocrisy. It's not, so it's not just a counterfeit authority, it's a counterfeit legacy. And what I mean by legacy is the fact that even, even in the church today, our, our legacy is to teach the Word of God to our families, right? to those entrusted to our spiritual care, to basically prepare for the work of the gospel, the next generation. That's the only real legacy that matters. But in that is an example of Spirit-empowered righteousness, that when we teach the Word of God, we also do according to what it says. It's, you may have heard the phrase, do as I say, not, not as I do. Sometimes we take that standard with our kids, and that's just pure hypocrisy. That's Phariseeism. A real, godly, biblical legacy means abiding by the very things we're teaching. And tragically, it would seem that the crowds and the disciples actually saw the Pharisees as an example to be followed. That's why Jesus literally says, stop doing what they're doing. It's like they were already on their way of following their example. He's saying, stop doing what they are doing. Stop seeing them as great men of God. It's like they didn't didn't realize that they were hypocrites. They didn't realize that they did not practice what they preach. They may tell you to be generous, and yet they're devouring widows' houses. They may tell you, you know, only worship God, don't serve idols, and yet they pursue riches, they pursue fame, right? They have made an idol of self. Many different examples could suffice. But here's the reality. The student, more often than not, becomes like his teacher. He not only listens to what his teacher says, but he watches his life. He asks he asks himself, how does this person live? How does this person conduct themselves? And sometimes hypocrisy isn't noticed. Sometimes it is, but often it isn't. So, so the student may unwittingly listen to what his teacher is saying, but then start living like him. And if that teacher is a hypocrite, he will find himself in the same enslaving hypocrisy. 
you will find yourself, in short, becoming less like Jesus and more like a Pharisee. And of course, that hypocrisy must be burned away. And so, of course, Jesus says, you see what you're doing? Stop doing that. Don't see them as an example, because it is a hypocritical example. So you have that counterfeit uh, legacy, you have the counterfeit authority, don't do what they do, they usurp authority that does not belong to them. We find automatically these things, if they are not heeded, are become especially dangerous for the church. We've said time and time again, one of the things that the church must root out of itself is hypocrisy. Basically, seeing the Word of God as optional, proclaiming to believe it, proclaiming to love and embrace it, and yet refusing to live by it, even though the Word of God contains everything that we need to live a life faithfully before our Lord, to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit unto godliness. Everything, this is sufficient for the task, friends. And yet it is the height of hypocrisy to treat it as anything other than that. So we live a life consistent with the gospel that we teach, right? And what are we saying the gospel is? Same thing that the Apostle Paul says. The power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, right? If we claim a gospel of power, why, why would we fail then to live by it? If we proclaim a gospel that is going to change our lives, then why would we ever live as if, as if it has made no change, as if it ha- has, has made no effect, Why would we live continually according to the old creation? To who we are apart from Christ? It's like the man that James characterizes, right? They look at themselves in the mirror. They walk away and immediately forget what they saw, what they looked like. And that really is Phariseeism at its core. And what a shame for the church who is able to see itself clearly through, through the mirror of Scripture, and yet go away and forget all that the Word of God has said. See, these are the brood of vipers that, that John examines at the beginning of this very Gospel. They were like snakes, crafty, cunning, they knew what words to say, but dangerous. And of course, John the Baptist saw the scales a mile away. Who warned you, he says, to flee the wrath to come? And really, this is not the first time that Israel's made this mistakes. And of course, if you read 1 Corinthians, we're warned of that very thing. Avoid Israel's mistakes. Avoid apostasy. Avoid unbelief. Avoid murmuring against God. Avoid accusing God of not being holy and of not being in your midst. But these religious leaders made the same thing. They made the same mistake as they did even before the exile. Listen to what Isaiah describes. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. See, it wasn't just idolatry in Israel that was the problem. They were taking advantage of the least of these. The very least of these that Jesus Himself holds us accountable to tend to, to watch over. See, in this context, religious leaders are ruling over them. Right? Especially the return from exile. Right? Israel didn't have a king under the Roman Empire. And so who kind of filled that void? The religious leaders. Their word, as it were, became law. They became the politicians rather than spiritual leaders, rather than spiritual and faithful shepherds. 
So they're just simply repeating history. They're repeating Isaiah's warnings. Ezekiel also identifies the same problem. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought the lost, but with with force and with severity, you have dominated them. See, that's simply apostate dominion. We've, talked, we've been talking a lot, especially in our men's study, about taking dominion and about using, using, taking dominion in order to advance the kingdom and glory of Jesus Christ. Well, the apostate direction of that is domination. It's subjugation rather than working side by side with your brothers in Christ. And so with severity, Ezekiel says, you have dominated them. And of course, the Pharisees and scribes the chief priests are doing the exact same thing. They are dominating the people, treating them Lord them, all the while proclaiming themselves to be the standard of true righteousness and spiritual maturity. And yet they are nothing more than hypocrites. They know nothing of grace. They know nothing of gentleness. They know nothing of patience. And they know nothing of caring for the flock of Israel. They are little better than spiritual tyrants. As Jesus indicts them for later on, He says, you shut the kingdom in men's faces. You do it while they're paying attention. That's the result of spiritual tyranny. And those are things which must be exposed for what they are. Repented of, burned up. And with, all the, with those two counterfeits, with counterfeit authority and legacy, comes also a counterfeit integrity. That is, the Pharisees, going back to that passage, they do not follow their own advice. Hypocrisy inherently is inconsistent. The church is called, again, to live consistently with what it teaches. We are to be a church full of integrity. That we hear the Word of God, we read it, we learn it, we internalize it, and we apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We understand, and part of integrity is, is the understanding and the, the humble acknowledgement that without the Spirit of God empowering us, we would never be able to live according to the Word of God. So it's not through self-effort or our own strength, as we will soon see. But it is the power of God that makes this possible. To have victory over sin. To not be a hypocrite. And to walk in integrity and godliness. To practice what we preach. Paul identifies this well in Romans 2. Long passage, but listen to this, 17-24. through 24. He's actually talking to the Jews here. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And I'm absolutely horrified to say that this passage could describe many churches in our day. 
We know the law of God. We proclaim the law of God. We say we love the law of God. We proclaim ourselves to be a light to those who are in darkness. We proclaim that we have the truth so that we can correct the foolish. Right? And yet, have we at the same time failed to ask ourselves, are we doing the very things that Paul indicts religious persons for? Because as Christians, we do, we do claim, we claim we have knowledge of true religion. It is all found in Christ, all truth, all righteousness, all wisdom is found in Him. But are we failing, he says in verse 21, are we failing to teach ourselves? Sometimes I wonder if we're even asking ourselves these questions. If we have any kind of godly fear in our midst, we should be. Because the very context of this says that these things will be exposed for what they are. And they will be destroyed. This is part of an old apostate system that is going down. And I would say, in light of all that we've learned, that the burning is still going on. It's still being exposed in the church. Especially where there is not repentance. This all leads us to the book of Revelation where we find the Lord giving warnings where necessary. He says, be zealous therefore and repent. doesn't just say it to one church. In, in, in His sovereign glory, in His radiance, He walks among the churches. And with his, um, his omnipotent and omniscient vision, His gaze pierces the heart of these churches, and He is able to identify that which assails them. And He says, be zealous therefore and repent, but if you don't repent, I will come quickly to you and maybe remove your lampstand. But in order to repent, in order to be zealous, we have to begin with a humble heart that asks these questions. Is, is what Paul is describing here in Romans 2 true of not only me as an ind individual, but does hypocrisy characterize our church? Are we making demands, big demands, to the social sphere, right? To all that is civil, to that which is not the institution of the church, and telling them to repent, to turn to God, to cease from doing wickedly, and yet doing those very same things. Are we? Because as Paul warns, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You know, King David went through the very same thing. You realize when he committed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then had Uriah murdered, that very thing happened. The reason that the sword would not depart from King David's house is because it was said of David that you have given cause to the enemies of God to blaspheme. Trust me, we don't want a sword in the house of God like David did. We do not want his name to be blasphemed because we are hypocrites, perpetrating the very sins that we are condemning. See, this is where the aversion comes from, friends. And I realize that we're all being sanctified. None of us walks perfectly blamelessly all day, every day. But if we are truly in Christ, there will be a steady pattern of godliness. We will flee from sin. We will hate sin. There will be a holy disgust of sin starting in our own lives and a pursuit of righteousness by faith. But when we don't do that, it explains this aversion of people to draw near to the people of God, 
to see us as an example of integrity and righteousness, to see us as an example of all that is not hypocritical, but instead of all that, is, that characterizes truth and goodness as we reflect our Lord. And yet this opposition seems to increase there's many reasons before this, and I, for, for this, and I think that most should disturb us, some more than others, but why, why the aversion, right? I think the, the first one is probably the most obvious. There's atheism, and we would say probably God doesn't believe in atheists, but there are people who claim that they do not believe in God. They just don't acknowledge the existence of God. They cling to their autonomy. They demand their independence. We've been seeing that all week, right? The my body, my choice kind of thing. Talk about an anti-God statement, a statement that is so filled with hatred toward the Lordship of Christ. My body, my choice. You know, I know we often respond that the body inside your body is not your body, but honestly, your body isn't your body either. The earth is the, Lord and the Lord's and all it contains. You are subject to His Word. You are accountable to His commands and to His standards. Not to live life as you see fit, without some God or, heaven forbid, a pastor looking over your shoulder telling you what to do. This is the person who says, ignorance is bliss. I will not bother thinking about these so-called religious things, these Stone Age dogmas. We have that. We just have unbelief. Determined, settled unbelief. But I think there's some that are directed toward the character, the character of the church itself. So look at those Christians, right? Those Christians, look at them. So judgmental. Bunch of haters. So self-righteous. Always telling people what they can and can't do. We see those things, right? But above all, right? I'd say at the top of this, is look at those Christians. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. There are a bunch of hypocrites in there, and we don't want any part of it. Oh man, wish that charge wouldn't stick, and yet in so many instances it does. There are a bunch of hypocrites there, and I want nothing to do with it. And of course, when it comes to things like hatred and judgmentalism, you know, we want to have a biblically reformed response to all of these things, don't we? We want to be able to respond to those accusations. Say, and even ask ourselves, are, are these things true? For instance, there are things that the Christian hates. We've talked about before, to love as God truly loves requires us to actually hate what God hates. Otherwise, our love is going to be full of hypocrisy. There are things God hates, and so we can say, yes, we hate sin. We hate unrighteousness. We love the truth. We love, we love God. So what is not of God, what is opposed to Him, yes, we hate. We hate teaching that is contrary to biblical truth. Even the psalmist says, I hate every false way. I hate the enemies of God with perfect hatred. They have become my enemies. It's a hard thing to say, but there it is in the Scriptures. So above all, we love the name of the Lord Jesus, and so we hate it when God's name is maligned and dragged through the mud and misrepresented as we are constantly reminded of. But at least that keeps our guard up, right? Well, how about being judgmental? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you are judgmental? How many of you are judgmental Christians? Shame on you. We're all judgmental. 
We're making judgments all the time. Yeah, don't be shy. We are judgmental. And I would say this with full biblical force. Christians should be judgmental. We should be the most judgmental people in the world. With, of course, some caveats. But there is a precedent for judging. Even in 1 Corinthians, what does Paul say of the spiritual man? The truly spiritual man judges all things. He judges all things. We are to examine things. We are to hold them up, inspect them, evaluate them, and come to a biblically grounded conclusion. Even if it goes against the whole world. Even if it goes against the, some prevailing popular philosophy that's currently, uh, currently afflicting the church. Who doesn't judge their steps, right? When you walk, when you, get, you know, when, you get, when you wake up in the morning, you judge whether or not you want to get out, out of that warm, comfortable bed. You judge before you walk out of the door whether or not you're sufficiently caffeinated. And when you're on the road, you judge whether you're sufficiently caffeinated or if you should go and drop $5 on awful coffee. What I'm saying is you are making judgments all the time. Non-stop. You're, I mean, judgment is pretty much on autopilot. You're, you're always evaluating things. Who's thirsty and doesn't judge that he should drink water? Who's hungry and doesn't judge that he should eat some food? Who walks in a dark room and judges that he should turn on a light so he doesn't stumble and fall and bust his head open? We're judgmental to the core. It's unavoidable. All I'm saying is that the church really needs to reverse trend on this. Instead of getting really defensive and saying, oh no, we're not judgmental, we say, absolutely we are judgmental. But we have a particular standard that is the Holy Scriptures by which we judge. And we judge everything through that lens, through that Christian worldview. We're always making judgments. So how much more should we be evaluating spiritual things, making spiritual judgments, and being able to discern between truth and error? But here's the greater point. Here's the greater point this morning. You can be a biblical hater. <laughs> you, can be a biblical, you can be a biblical judge, right? Even though we say, judge not lest you be judged, the context there is, judge without hypocrisy. Right? These things can all be done biblically. Here's the problem. There's no biblical way to be a hypocrite. So all these things they're accusing us of, right? whether being a hater or being a judge, sure, there's a biblical, biblically grounded way to do that. But there is no way to be a biblical hypocrite. You cannot say one thing and do the other. And of course, we're able to come up with several quaint responses to that. We say, here's a popular one, well, we have plenty of room for another hypocrite, why don't you come and join us? We're just full of hypocrisy here. Another response is, well, if we're a bunch of hypocrites, why don't you come down to church and show us how not to be hypocrites? Why don't you come and show us how it's done? If you're truly without hypocrisy. Let me offer a third alternative to us this morning. Listen very carefully. How about we just don't be hypocrites? How about that? Just not be hypocrites. No smart aleck responses. No cleverness. Just stop being hypocritical. Why not instead, as we are called to do from the Lord Himself, to pursue holiness, to put the things of God in practice, to love the truth, to walk consistently with it, to live out this grace that has been lavished so abundantly upon us? I fail to see why there is a problem with that. 
But I think hypocrisy is one of these things that we constantly use to, I guess, project false humility. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite. Stop it! And to reiterate, I'm in no way saying that we are, that, that, that in this life we will be able to live in sinless perfection. I'm not saying that at all. There is always going to be a little bit of hypocrisy. But what I'm trying to decry here is this myth that hypocrisy is a welcome friend in the congregation. That it's basically living rent-free in our midst. And we know that's difficult sometimes. It's difficult to even spot hypocrisy. But the trajectory, the sanctifying trajectory, is always to be pursuing Christ-likeness. Yes, Sanctification means that as we grow in Christ, we sin less. It's not the only indicator, but it is a sound one. And we understand that with that, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we forget that so often. But this is not a pursuit of the flesh. This is not a pursuit of who we were apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a pursuit by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're reminded of that in Philippians. God is at work in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. That's the only way a Christian can work out their salvation with fear and trembling is starting with that truth that God is at work in Him and in us. Understanding that God equips and empowers every saint to obey what He commands. That's, why, that's what First John is getting at. This is how we know we know Him. If we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 1 John also tells us, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. That's our trajectory, friends. Not to make excuses for our hypocrisy, but to understand it that, it is, that the light of the Gospel exposes it clearly and it needs to go. It needs to be burned up. You think about the context in which they're writing. Right? The approaching day of the Lord. All this apocalyptic, fiery language. Things that are going to be burnt to a crisp. You know, that wasn't a one-and-done judgment. This judgment continues as the Lord continues to exercise His reign and rule over His people and over all of creation. These things are still in the mode of being exposed and being burnt up. So that, as Peter will go on to say, we can see the new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, right? Where righteousness is the occupying reality, not hypocrisy. But that is accomplished with the knowledge that the Lord dwells with us and in us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Hypocrisy is definitely of the flesh. So much of what characterizes the flesh. But if we walk according to the Spirit, and the Spirit is opposed violently to the flesh, hypocrisy will not gain a foothold. And this is, not, this is not simply doing our best and letting God do the rest. No, it's far more than that. It's striving, as Paul says, according to His power which works mightily in us. This is watching God work out His best. Not our best, but the best that God has to offer. That is Himself becoming glorified in us and empowering us for every good work. So for every onslaught that the world may bring, that the fallen creation may Face, try to face us down with, it is not greater than the one who dwells with us. And so we hate evil, we cling to what is good, we put on the armor of God, 
and we obey Him. Right? The sins of hypocrisy and every sin we'll list here, these are things that are meant to be overcome. We are meant to have the victory, and we know that the victory is already run, won because Christ has won it for us in His death and resurrection. And so we rest on those promises. And yet we still remind ourselves, as 1 John says, the one who claims to be in Him must walk in the same manner as He walked. Right? Christ is our true example. Not some Pharisee. Not some spiritual, spiritually high and mighty zealot who can't follow what he says. So here's the thing. Going back to these three counterfeits, integrity or authority, integrity, and legacy, right? We repent from hypocrisy. Here's some of the things we can enjoy. It's a little very practical here. The first regards authority. When we preach the Gospel, friends, we preach an authority that is not our own. It's not inherently our own. We preach the authority of God's Word. As we've reminded ourselves many times, the Gospel is not just the good news of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. It is actually a command. When we proclaim the Gospel, we are telling people upon pain of eternal death and damnation that they must repent and believe. The Gospel is a command. And when we preach that without hypocrisy, our testimony will be robust and strong. These words will come through mightily as we communicate truth. Because honestly, if they're not full of power, they're just going to be full of poison. People don't want to hear from a hypocrite. So don't be one. Secondly, in terms of integrity, I think this is great for the church. Again, we are, as we understand, we're living under the Lordship of Christ. He's King of kings, Lord of lords. He is ruling in the midst of His enemies. And we live under that reign. We submit to it. Okay. And so when we live without hypocrisy, what does that mean? Is that no one can look at us and accuse us of living a double life. If you remember our, our study through 1 Peter, this was the very thing that was occurring. This was the very challenge. Right? You've been saved. Right? You've been raised to a living hope. And if that hope is real, and it is, do not go back to the previous life that you were living. Even though those who are trying to get you to go along with them are surprised that you're not, right? they will not be able to accuse you of hypocrisy, of living a double life. They will not be able to call into question the power of the Gospel. And I think as a blessing to us, neither will we. We will see the Gospel mightily at work in our own lives as we are conformed to Christ's likeness. And here's the third one is regarding legacy. What, be, what is legacy without hypocrisy? Once we, once we repent from hypocrisy, what becomes, what becomes of this? Again, we want to clarify this because when it, comes to, when it comes to preaching the gospel, when it comes to being a faithful witness to Christ... It's not, it's not us that we want people to remember. We want people to remember, above all, the truth that we spoke, right? We don't pre I don't preach the Gospel of Jonathan. Jeremy doesn't preach the Gospel of Jeremy, right? We preach the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So more important than anything is that the truth we proclaim in this place, or whether it's here, or a Bible study, or even one-on-one, -on -one, is that you remember the truth. See, the hypocrite will always seek to place himself in the spotlight, Right? That's a hypocrite's legacy. A hypocrite wants you to remember all the wisdom and insight he had. Right? 
how, how wise he was, how, how clever he was, right? the things that he said. Right? Whereas a man or woman of, of integrity who speaks the Word of God clearly and authoritatively and humbly, all they will care about is that you remember the truth of Christ. If everything else faded away, it wouldn't matter if the truth of the Gospel remained. That's what I desire for us. I love that saying. The meaning of life is to preach the Gospel, die and be forgotten. (laughs) Who cares if we're forgotten if Christ is remembered in our church? That's what Paul says. Great example. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? Paul never forgot the supreme example was found in Christ ultimately. It was never follow me, period. But follow me as, as I follow Christ. In the same way, we are to be a pattern of godliness without compromise. That is, the, the tr- that is a true and lasting legacy we can give those that are placed under our spiritual care. Not to be those who say, we know Him and yet we don't obey Him. And that's hypocrisy. And I really think we can uh, stop there. We got two other items to tackle, but we can save them for the next Lord's Day. But I, wanna, I want us just to isolate this one and consider it. It's just how wicked hypocrisy is. And we've all been, again, we've all been affected by it. We may, we may be, here, be here today and be affected by it. We may be struggling with it. We may, we may have something that we are teaching consistently, and yet we are failing in that in our, in our own walk. And yet I don't want us to think for a minute that this is something that we can allow to remain, whether in our individual lives or even in the the church community. Far be it from us to call into question the integrity of the Scriptures, the authority of the Scriptures, right? All of the, the, the wonders of truth that are contained in God's Word because we are living lives inconsistently with it. Our calling is to bring glory to God. Our calling is to put Him on display so that people love, adore, worship, and trust Him. And yet, how difficult is that to do when we live in a way as if none of that matters and as if none of that has had an impact on us? And so just as we prepare our hearts this morning in view of that, I pray that the Lord would be with us in, 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 in such a merciful and gracious sense that, that we would identify hypocrisy in our own lives and be able to repent from it, to turn to Him, lay it before His feet, and understand that His grace is sufficient to root it out. And this is just something we needed to deal very severely with. Right? We don't want to compromise, to compromise our proclamation of Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for help to give us strength to walk with, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness to us. And, and uh, even though there are so many things we could go through today, we, we can stop here and consider, consider the, the gravity of, of living lives with with integrity to flee 
hypocrisy. We know it's, it's something that characterizes so much of uh, the Pharisaical order, not only of the first century, but even today. It's, it's something that has always been a challenge to your people, and yet you have called us to righteousness. You've called us to be holy as you are holy. And, and what that entails for certain is that we cannot be a people who are double-minded, who are, who are double-tongued, who say one thing and do another. And Lord, we are unable to do that uh, without Your strength. And I pray, God, for not only a patient reminder in our midst of that, how important that is, but that we would, that we would cling to every grace that You provide. So many Scriptures to remind us of the greatness of Your presence. That You are more powerful than the One who is in the world. That You are more than able to sustain us even in our weakness. That we don't have to worry about uh, somehow lacking in provision. Lord, we recognize the challenge, especially in the world we live in today, that Christianity particularly is targeted for this, and in a sense it's appropriate. In many ways we have wandered from walking in truth, from walking consistently with what we claim to believe, and I, and I would pray that if that is in our own company, that we would develop a holy hatred for sin, holy hatred for hypocrisy, that You would reignite our love for You, that Christ would be our greatest treasure, and that we would, uh, we would walk in integrity and preach the Gospel with authority, and as we've even considered to leave a true godly legacy for those entrusted to our care, that as Your Word is preached, the Word would remain. Even if we are forgotten, Lord, what matters is that Christ is remembered and loved and glorified above everything else. I pray that that would, be, that would be true of us, Lord, as we continue to contend for the faith and, and to depend on You for, for every good thing. So with that, Father, I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.